It is shortly before Christmas in the year 999. Cologne is about to turn to a new millennium. It is already cold and perhaps there was snow on that day. The people of Cologne stood amazed at the city gate. A man could be seen striding toward the city. It was the newly appointed Archbishop of Cologne by Otto III, Holy Roman Emperor and son of Theophanu. Or had he been elected in Cologne before? So be it. This man was now heading for the city gate to enter the city. But surprisingly, he did not ride on a horse, high on horseback in a saddle, as actually great princes of the empire did like that very man named Hiribert, who was now the new chief shepherd of Cologne. No, this Hiribert went on foot at eye level of the surrounding people. He had even taken off his shoes beforehand so that he entered the city completely barefoot on this cold day. A sign of humility towards his new task, which Hiribert wanted to express. And with that, welcome to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old, but until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, Therefore, its history can be seen like quasi a microcosm of European history. In this city, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. What is this episode about? As you might have guessed, it's about Heribert of Cologne, who was to be the chief shepherd of Cologne for about 20 years, from the year 999 onwards, and thus also the highest city ruler. Strictly speaking, this episode is also a continuation of the previous episode, Cologne around the year 1000. How convenient that the beginning of the episcopate of this Heribert fell almost exactly on the turn of the millennium. In this episode, we will look at who Heribert actually was, his work as a city lord, but also the city itself we will devote to. The long-distance traders, who at that time were mostly Frisians or Jews. We will talk about imperial politics, famines, but also about a promise that Hiribert would keep on the other side of the Rhine and Deutz. A redeemed promise that is still visible to everyone in Cologne today. On to the intro. Who was this Heribert anyway? Well, that Heribert would one day end up in Cologne was not really foreseeable at the beginning of his life. He had neither been educated at the Cologne Cathedral School, nor had he previously been a member of the Cologne Cathedral chapter, let alone previously worked in any clerical capacity in Cologne or even nearby. We don't know the exact date of birth of Heribert either, because at that time it was more true than today that age was just a number. But nevertheless, Heribert's biography can be reconstructed reasonably well. Heribert might have been born around the year 970. He came from the family of the so-called Conradines, named after the very King Conrad I, who had ruled the East Frankish Empire between 911 and 918 after the extinction of the Carolingians. We shortly talked about that in a previous episode. Although on his deathbed he had handed over the dignity of rule of the East Frankish Empire to the now ruling Saxon Ottonians, 
these Condradines continued to play a major role in the empire as influential counts, dukes, and princes of the Holy Roman Empire. Hiribert came from this same powerful family. A clerical career was planned for him. Due to his high noble descent, the way to a later high church office was already prepared for him. Hiribert began his intellectual career as a child, which was customary at the I know it's a funny name in English, at the Worms Cathedral School in the Rhine Mine area, located south of Cologne, that center of power of the later ruling dynasty of the Salians, who were to dominate the Holy Roman Empire from the year 2024 and peacefully replace the Ottonians as the head of the empire. In his younger years, he also stayed in the monastery of Gorze in Lorraine. Yes, I really mean today's Lorraine in France, and not the historical region of Lotharingia, which was much larger and also included our Cologne back then. The stay there was not unimportant for the further biography of Heribert, for here, as in the monastery of Cluny in Burgundy, a monastic reform movement was becoming more and more apparent, demanding a return to monastic life according to strict Benedictine rules. It had become too normal for priests to buy their offices, for monks not to observe celibacy, and so on. A really complicated subject for a modern history historian like me, which we do not want to go into here for the time being. But that the young Heribert should spend his entire existence as a simple monk in a monastery was out of the question for his father. A son of high nobility deserved more. So Heribert came to Worms, it's really actually a city, to my non-German listeners, where he eventually became the cathedral provost. Heribert presided over the Worms Cathedral chapter and was the administrator of the finances of Worms Cathedral with all its rich possessions. In 994, when Otto III had just come of age at the age of 14, the emperor summoned Heribert to his royal court and appointed him imperial chancellor for Italy, and in 998 he also appointed him imperial chancellor of the German part of the empire. Heribert had thus arrived at the pinnacle of power. A friendship quickly developed between the two men that not only lasted a lifetime but was to continue even after the death of one of them. More on this in a moment. And so Heribert had actually been set for alive at the head of the imperial court. Especially in Italy, there was always a lot to do on behalf of the emperor. For there, as was actually always the case, imperial rule was fragile as soon as the emperor returned north across the Alps to medieval Germany. So it happened in the summer of the year 999 that in the middle of an Italian campaign in Ravenna, Hiribert received the news that he had been elected as the new Archbishop of Cologne. Although it is often mentioned in the literature that the highest leadership of the Cologne clergy had chosen Heribert, but it's more likely that he was directly appointed by his friend and patron, Emperor Otto III. This is supported by the fact that Heribert continued to faithfully perform his duties in Italy for his emperor throughout the year, before traveling to Cologne at the end of the year to accept that he was now the new archbishop. Which brings us to the event of him going barefoot to the city, 
to the beginning of this episode. Unfortunately, we lack here the necessary space and, above all, time to illuminate Otto III in more detail. The son of our beloved Theophanu, who is still buried here in Cologne in St. Pantaleon. Despite his short life, Otto III was an extremely fascinating personality. Through his highly educated Greek mother, Otto III certainly possessed a far greater intellectual horizon than many of his contemporaries in the leading classes of the nobility and the church in his empire. However exactly what Otto III's Renovatio Imperii, the re-establishment of the Roman Empire, was supposed to look like as passionately debated in historical research. But one thing is certain, no ruler before him displayed such personal religious zeal, none prayed or fasted so often, met like a normal pilgrim on journeys. No German ruler before him put such a strong reference to Italy for his rule and especially Rome itself. Otto III really wanted to make the Eternal City his capital. Rome, and with it the papacy itself, was finally to be freed from the hands of the rival local Roman noble families who had far less in their interest than the leadership of the Christian Church than simple regional power politics. Even by early modern standards, the customs there in Rome were so degenerate that the Christians of the West were simply outraged by what was taking place in Rome at the center of the Catholic Church. Q. Pornocracy The term pornocracy describes a period in the 10th century where a large part of the popes were under the direct influence of powerful mistresses who had the chief shepherds of the church completely in their hands, had them murdered, and decided who became the new pope for many decades to come. So degenerate were the mores in the eyes of the contemporaries, as far as the papacy was concerned, that the already mentioned reform movements within the church slowly gained momentum. The papacy was to become decent again. Furthermore, Otto III introduced meaningless offices at this court, which also existed at the Byzantine imperial court. However, since the Holy Roman Empire, unlike the former Eastern Roman Empire, did not have a centralized civil service, this sometimes led to some curiosities. For example, Otto III gave the office of admiral to a high nobleman. The only stupid thing was that the Holy Roman Empire did not have a fleet at all. And fun fact, never would have in its 1,000-year history. To what extent Heribert supported this program of his emperor, this so-called renewal of the Roman Empire, is also a debate that perhaps belongs elsewhere. Of course it can't be denied that Heribert, as a friend, chancellor of the Italian and German parts of the empire, and as Archbishop of Cologne, can hardly be considered an opponent of Otto's plans. Otherwise, the emperor would not have promoted Heribert in this way. But enough of that. Let's take a look at Heribert's work in Cologne. Because unlike an Archbishop Bruno some 50 years earlier, Heribert was to spend much time and also explicitly the focus of his more than 20 years in office in Cologne. 
Why? After all, he was a great imperial prince around the year 1000 as a member of the imperial court and chancellor of Italy and Germany. Well, the fact that Heribert spent so much time in Cologne was due to a promise he had made to Otto III, a promise that Heribert, to his own regret, had to keep much too early. In 1002, Heribert received a call for help from his friend and patron Otto III. The emperor was in Italy, as he often was during his reign. Resistance was stirring there, especially in the eternal city Rome. Otto III had even withdrawn from Rome because he no longer felt safe there and had moved to a fortress outside the city along with the Pope. Immediately, the Archbishop of Cologne traveled to his friend in Italy. But when Heribert arrived, the worst had happened. The emperor, who was only 22 years old, was dying in bed. He had probably contracted malaria, just like his father once had in Italy. In the presence of the Pope, Heribert and numerous relics that Otto had placed around his sickbed, the emperor died on January 24, 1002. Don't worry, I'm not going to expand on the history of the German Empire here, but it is Heribert who now brought the body of his deceased friend back across the Alps to the Rhineland. But the return journey was full of dangers. When Heribert traveled through the Duchy of Bavaria, the local Duke Henry took him prisoner. Why did this Henry do that? Well, Otto III had died childless. Henry, a distant relative and son of, oh my, Henry the Crowelsome, you might remember him, claimed a throne for himself. Heribert, however, had intended another candidate from the Ottonian dynasty, Duke Hermann of Swabia. To make a long story short, and not to prolong this story, Henry prevailed. And with that, Heribert was out of favor with the new ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Heribert lost both chancellorships immediately. Only the Archbishopric of Cologne and all his possessions remained with him. Even an emperor would not dare to take that away from an archbishop. This still made Heribert a powerful imperial prince, but on the imperial level itself, at the royal court, he hardly played an active role anymore. Heribert was simply just watching from the sidelines. Therefore, from the year 1002, the Archbishop of Cologne no longer directed his attention to the Empire, but to the Rhineland and, of course, to Cologne itself. Heribert returned to Cologne on March 30, 1002. Until April 2, the Archbishop had his deceased friend and Emperor Otto III laid out in Cologne, the first day in St. Severin, the next day in St. Pantaleon, then in St. Gerion, and on the last day in the old Cologne Cathedral. In this way, the people of Cologne were able to bid farewell to the emperor quasi-exclusively themselves. Afterwards, the funeral procession moved on to Aachen, where Otto III was buried in Charlemagne's Palatine Church. You can still visit him there in today's Aachen Cathedral. With his work limited to Cologne and his archbishopric, since the new king and later emperor Henry II was not 
uh, so fond of him anymore, Heribert sets out to make his mark on the local posterity. As announced, Heribert had to fulfill a promise to the late Otto. Both had once sworn to each other that, after the death of the first of the two, the other would have to found a monastery. And since this was a sacred promise, Heribert set about fulfilling it directly. Heribert chose the dilapidated Roman fort on the other side of the Rhine in Deutz as the site for this monastery foundation. The construction work began quickly. Of course, the monastery church was built first. But Heribert seems to have acted too hastily to fulfill his promise. Shortly after completion, in fact, the church collapsed due to construction defects. When external builders were hired by Heribert after their expertise, it quickly became clear. The whole construction site was defective in itself. Even the foundation walls, including the foundations of the church, were unusable and first had to be replaced. Only then could the new building be started. In a time when there were no heavy motorized machines, a tedious task of about 20 years. But Heribert was to see the completion just at the end of his life. So, you can see, construction projects have always taken longer in Cologne, not just since the opera and the cathedral itself. The fact that Heribert chose Deutz as location for this monastery was not only due to the fact that he, as Archbishop of Cologne, was in possession of this fort and the surrounding area. Heribert had also taken geographical aspects into consideration. With the monastery in Deutz, east of Cologne, Cologne not only had a complete ring of churches, monasteries and foundations around the city when seen from a bird-eyes view. No, Deutz in the east of the city now also formed a cross with St. Apostles in the west, St. Ursula in the north and St. Severin in the south. The church Great St. Martin in the harbor district formed the point where both imaginary beams of the cross met. If you look at the map of Cologne nowadays, you will truly notice that this is not exactly a straight cross, but well, at that time one had not yet been able to measure everything exactly, let alone a map of Cologne from the bird's eye view existed. That was to happen only in the early modern era. They didn't even have GPS satellites. The protective ring of churches around the city itself formed from south to north clockwise. St. Severin, St. Pantaleon, St. Apostles, St. Gerion, St. Ursula, St. Kundibert and that very monastery in Deutz. This is high medieval urban planning under iconographic Christian guidelines. All this is too confusing for you or you don't know exactly where all these churches I just mentioned are located? No worries, just have a look at my interactive city map which you can view on thehistoryofcologne.com or, but I'm not the greatest graphic artist, I'll try to draw schematically a very simplified map with the respective churches around and in the city. The Benedictine monastery in Deutz itself, donated by Heribert, was of great proportions for that time. At its consecration in 1020, the monastery stood on foundation walls 4 meters thick. Walls 5 meters thick had been built on top of it. 
Like a slight oval, the center of the church measured 30 meters by 90 meters with an enormous dome on top of it. Thus the building was even larger in span than Charles the Great's Palatine Church in Aachen. To the west of this slightly oval central building was an entrance building and to the east it was adjoined by a nave. The great thing is, we know reasonably well how the building looked like. In 1531, the graphic artist Anton Bunsam captured the city panorama of the time in his famous view of Cologne from Deutz, looking west across the Rhine. The domed building of the monastery church is clearly visible in this view. If you look at this church on the city view of Anton Wunsam, you will see a significant similarity of the building with the basilica and church of St. Gerion in the northwest of Cologne. Unfortunately, the building is not preserved nowadays. More about this in a second. It is true that Heribert had also chosen this location for the monastery for religious reasons. Keyword cross in and ring around the city. At the same time, of course, strategic military reasons had also been decisive. Located directly opposite of the city of Cologne and on the Rhine, the monastery also served to secure the right side of the Rhine and shipping traffic for the city. And I told you in the episode about the Vikings, Cologne would not be conquered or destroyed for over 900 years after the Viking raid in 881. Unfortunately, this cannot be said for Deutz. Deutz was destroyed several times in the course of its history. It often had to serve as a kind of punching bag and as kind of compensation for the destructive fury of enemy armies, all of which failed to conquer the opposite mighty city of Cologne itself. And well, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that, but it's the people of Cologne themselves too who, among other things, attack and destroy Deutz in 1376. Why this happened? Why Cologne decided to set its neighboring uh, place on fire? We will come to that in due course. The final end came in the 17th century. In 1632, Deutz was severely devastated by Swedish troops in the course of the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, the Swedes. They were here in that period. When the monastery was destroyed this time, it was decided not to rebuild the church. It was decided to build a smaller, baroque, half-Romanesque new building, which dominates the Deutz Rhine Bank to this day. But we are still here around the year 1020. Heribert permanently bequeathed numerous benefices and possessions to the monastery, which were to secure the monastery's prosperity over the centuries until the French invasion at the end of the 18th century. Deutz as a surrounding village itself belonged to it, of course, but also areas in the present-day districts of Cologne like Kalk, Pfingst, Poll, Westhoven, Rolzhoven and part of the Königsforst forest on the right bank of the Rhine. The abbey also owned property beyond this in the region. This was, of course, an enormous economic development potential that was created here. Even though it would take until well into the 19th century and 20th century for the right bank of the Rhine to be incorporated into the city of Cologne, with the foundation of the monastery in Deutz, an important milestone has been laid for the development of the entire Cologne of today's right bank of the Rhine. 
Heribert is more closely associated with Deutz than almost anyone else who came after him, but he also did a lot of work in the actual city of Cologne. He also had the power and financial means to do so. Since Bruno, the archbishops of Cologne, had considerable rights at their disposal to exercise their power, they held the former Frankish count rights for the city. They had been permanently granted jurisdiction on a large scale, which was actually reserved as a royal right until then, and they could make many independent decisions of their own economically, such as levying taxes, collecting taxes themselves, exercising market rights, and owned many properties that had once been in the king's possession, like Deutz, among others. When Heribert took office as archbishop, Shortly before the turn of the millennium, he encountered the city on the rise. Cologne, with its numerous monasteries, foundations and churches and under the suzerainty of the archbishop, may sound like Cologne was a place where a theocratic regime and there were only people here living that were praying on their knees all day long, but that was not the case. All these monasteries Convents and churches were possible because the city had a lively and varied economic life, as it did in Roman times. Trade routes between west and east, north and south met here. The Rhine connected large areas of Europe and the Roman roads were still in use. But you already know all that anyway. I already told you in the last episode. And just like in Roman times, Cologne was not only active in long-distance trade, also produced numerous trade goods and commodities made of glass, iron or textiles. The hustle and bustle of merchants and craftsmen made up a large part of everyday life. The streets in the port districts were full of merchants, craftsmen, art dealers, art makers and so on. Long distance merchants from Friesland sold cloth. The region of Flanders, which was easily accessible by the Rhine and economically prosperous, relied entirely on exports and saw Cologne as an important trading partner. Economic exchange also intensified with England, which was connected to the Rhineland by the North Sea. Soon the market areas of the Heumarkt and Altermarkt, once occupied by Bruno, would no longer suffice for all of this. Soon today's Neumarkt, the New market would be built in the west of the city, right next in front of the city wall, but still inside the city, of course. The increasing prosperity leaves not only economic traces in the city. At this time, the sources speak of a quote, prepositus negotiarum, end quote, in other words, a head of the merchants. What this person or office was, however, it is not entirely clear. Was it already a representative of all merchants and traders that was elected by them? If so, this would be a first sign of how the merchants began to bundle their interests in order to speak with one voice to the city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne. Then we would have here one of the earliest traces of the organized Cologne citizenry, even though the word citizenry is a difficult topic for medieval times, but let's just call it that for now. Or was it perhaps the other way around, that this was a position that the archbishop himself had created in order to talk to the merchants and traders on his behalf while he was doing different tasks like praying and making politics in his archbishopric? 
Here, one can only speculate for the time being. Besides the Frisians, there was another group that was active in long-distance trade here in 11th century Europe. It was the Jews. This may be surprising to some, since often in popular historical research, there's only talk about the fact that Jews in the Middle Ages were not allowed any other profession except money lending. That is not always entirely true either, but that was a later development in the Middle Ages. Now in the 11th century, the Jews were considered the long-distance traders and merchants par excellence, while connected internationally. This would change later though. Especially when the big markets took place in Cologne, merchants of Jewish faith, not only from Cologne but also from Mainz or Worms, bustled about in the city on the Rhine. We must also devote a special attention to the Jewish community in Cologne at this time. After all, it is the oldest Jewish community north of the Alps in Europe. For the early 11th century, the Jewish community appears again in the historical sources in Cologne. Whether they existed consistently in Cologne between the 4th and 11th century, sadly not known for this, as for many facts we lack the necessary historical sources and evidence. Probably in 1012, Heribert himself allowed the Jews to build a synagogue in the middle of the city. As I said, we must devote ourselves to the Jewish community of Cologne in a separate episode. Therefore here, only a small foretaste. I'm actually not a fan of the term of the Dark Ages for the Middle Ages. And even the Middle Ages is uh, not a really nice, uh, flattering term for that period. And both terms are always bad-mouthed. I believe that the 20th century has also many, <laughs> many periods of really dark ages. Well, but I'm digressing. An often-mentioned characteristic for the Middle Ages are the famines that occurred again and again. But famines were something that existed both before and after the Middle Ages in the Rhineland as well. The last famine in Germany, for example, was in 1946-1947, when a particularly cold winter coupled with the consequences of war caused hundreds of thousands to starve to death and many more millions in the rest of Europe. So not too long ago, there are still people living that experienced that time. Famines were therefore not something specific to the Middle Ages, but often they occurred on a regional basis and were limited in time. Not that everybody was always having a famine in whole Europe all the time. Despite a warmer climate in Europe than in previous centuries, there were two severe famines at the beginning of the new millennium in the Rhineland. Both famines were so bad that sources say there was even cannibalism in some parts. The city of Cologne was not quite as badly affected by the famine. A city like Cologne was a tightly organized community. We should actually talk about that as well, but let's do that later. As in Roman times, there were several grain stores here in the city that were available for such cases, like famines. These stores were under archbishop's supervision, of course. It was well known that cities like Cologne had such food reserves, and so it is not surprising that the starving rural population was drawn to the city. Here, Heribert showed himself both times 
as a proven crisis manager. Hiribert organized sufficient food, shelter and clothing for the refugees. But not only in Cologne, in the entire area of the Archdiocese of Cologne, Hiribert provided for a significant alleviation of the need with monetary donations and organizational talent. When the need was over, I mean the famine was over, Hiribert did not kick the people out again, but even organized the regulated and safe return of the refugees to their respective homelands and helped them financially to build up a new existence again. That a ruler, rather secular or spiritual, was irrelevant, Hiribert was both in one person anyway, dedicated himself to caritas, charity, was expected in this time. But mostly this was just a mere giving of alms, a la Oh, you're hungry? Here, have a piece of stale bread. And that was it. Well, own salvation saved for the guy who gave the stale bread. However, Heribert went much further by initiating measures, setting up aid structures and coordinating them himself in order to provide long-term relief and not just distributing a piece of bread to everyone on one single day. This made Hiribert extremely popular already during his lifetime. This is especially evident at his later funeral where the people themselves directly attributed several miracles to the recently deceased and as a result he was canonized by the church rather quickly. A hospital for the poor built a few years after Hiribert's death directly between Cologne Cathedral and St. Andrews later bore his name until its dissolution and demolition in the 19th century. Archbishop Hiribert died in 1021, after more than 20 years in office as Archbishop of Cologne. He was buried, where else, in the large domed abbey church in Deutz, which he himself had endowed and which soon also received his name after his canonization, Saint Heribert. A golden shrine which once stood there in the abbey church serves as his final resting place. Heribert's golden shrine is still in Deutz today, namely in the new directly neighboring Saint Heribert's church in Deutz, which was built in 1896. Today's church of old Saint Heribert from the 17th century, the place where once the really old church of St. Heribert stood that was destroyed by the Swedes in the 17th century, serves nowadays the Greek Orthodox community as a church and is accordingly also designed by the interior according to their specifications. You must go in there when it's open. You really have the feeling of being in a Byzantine building. The golden shrine in which Heribert found his final resting place is a masterpiece of the goldsmith's art of the 12th century. Really, really impressive. And the great thing is, you can, thanks to a pedestal built around it, look at it up close from all sides and see all the great and intricate details of the 12th century goldsmiths and jewelers. Like I said, really impressive. In his more than 20 years as Archbishop of Cologne, Hiribert accomplished much that went far beyond the standards of his contemporaries. In 2021 was the 1000th anniversary of his death. 
For the celebrations, including a large exhibition in Deutz and in the Cologne Cathedral Treasury, a book was published which not only showed the exhibition itself as a catalogue, but also a great representation of the world of Heribert here in Cologne at the beginning of the 11th century. The book is called, in German of course, Heribert von Köln ein Lebensbild, so Heribert of Cologne, a biography, and was written by the Cologne historian and professor Heribert Müller. May I say that I find it funny that a biography of Saint Heribert was written by a historian whose first name is also Heribert? A circumstance that also the author takes up with a wink in the introduction of his book. This book, you might have guessed it, served significantly as the basis for this episode. Thank you very much, Herr Müller. With the foundation of the monastery on the banks of the Rhine in Deutz around the year 1000, Heribert created a link to the Cologne of today on the right bank of the Rhine, which significantly promoted the economic development here. Heribert, in spite of being pushed aside politically by Emperor Henry II, continued to be a powerful imperial prince simply because of the power that the possessions of the Archbishopric of Cologne gave him. Nevertheless, Heribert was also a true shepherd who, compared to his time, stood out. The motives can perhaps be deduced from the fact that Heribert became enthusiastic about the monastic and ecclesiastical reform movements which demand the return of the church to its core tasks, that is to take care and to do charity for the common people. The church had become too secularized in the eyes of many clergy. The office of Archbishop of Cologne itself is a good example of this. Who could have guessed that back in Roman times when Maternus was just a small little bishop and having just maybe a few hundred Christians in his city would later, I mean his office, would later be the one that ruled the whole of Cologne and the surrounding countryside and a big part of the Rhineland. Nobody would have thought of this a few dec centuries ago. Not only did Heribert fight famines with simple donations of food, no, like a kind of medieval crisis manager. He also set up structures to combat them. So that the fight against famine in the region was not just a single event. Heribert, like so many examples, stands for the fact that the Middle Ages were not just a dark, oppressive time, but that there were people who really stood up to the challenges and the risks of their time and tried to solve them. Let's leave here for today. I hope you really enjoyed the life of Heribert and how that affected the city of Cologne. Like I said, in this period of Cologne's history, the archbishops of Cologne are the sole supreme rulers of the city. Nobody tells them what to do, except the emperor. This is the reason why the next episodes will also talk about several important, powerful, medieval archbishops. In the next episode, we will talk about the city itself, how it is developing, building activities really uh, strongly going on. We will talk about a drought and how the Cologne citizenry, I know you should not call it citizenry, the Cologne people, how they overcame it. And we will talk about a very ugly archbishop and the saga behind that. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about the history of Cologne part. 
Subscribe and rate this podcast where possible so others can enjoy my voice and the history of the city, like on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Follow me on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or TikTok. There you can find me as History of Cologne Podcast. On my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, I always have many pictures and background information for every single episode, including an interactive city map where you can see where places and buildings etc. can be found in today's cityscape of Cologne. And in my link tree in the show notes, you will find other ways how you can additionally support this podcast, my one-man show, my hobby in the evening and on the weekend. Have a look. I would be very happy. Thank you for listening. And until then, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>